Welcome to the Sea Press Podcast, a podcast from the Presbytery of Seattle that invites you into conversations about issues and topics that are meaningful to the church and its people. Hi, this is Scott Lumsden. Uh, this is the Sea Press Podcast, uh, COVID edition for the next uh, couple of years, I think. Uh, and with me today uh, are my wonderful colleagues. Uh, Tally Hairston and Eliana Maxim. We wanted to get into uh, a topic today that uh, Tally's going to set up for us about uh, leading change. Thanks, Scott. Uh, it's good to be with everyone. The setup for today's podcast is the idea that our time and where we find ourselves in this space as leaders is uh, a very anxious and for, for many, fearful experience. And it's not because we haven't led before or because many of us have not led in hard times or accompanied others in hard times or even been present to tough situations or circumstances. But this season seems to be stressful, anxious, fearful for leaders because we're being called to lead change. And it reminds me of the time where Moses' leadership comes onto the stage, and Moses is not asked to maintain a system, manage a system, even be with the people. Moses is asked to lead change, to take a people who were enslaved and lead them into freedom to a place he did not know. And so today's podcast um, is asking the question, um, the questions built around this idea of leading change. So I appreciate that, um, Tally, because I think one of the things that I'm hearing um, in our conversations with congregational leaders and faith community leaders is the unknown territory that they've had to navigate. And interestingly, the, the technical aspect of it, which everyone encountered early on, you know, that first week in March, it's remarkable how people were able to figure that out, the technical aspect. The first couple of weeks, uh, scrambling, and suddenly, boom, there it was. Either they were live streaming or recording their worship services or providing printed materials. So that technical aspect of change, people were able to pretty quickly adapt to. And so much of the struggle that I'm hearing now is, and then now what? So we covered the technical aspect. I'm being able to deliver some product in some way, shape, or form. But the other aspects of what it means to be a leader, that's up in the air. How do we think about the future? How do we think about our identity? How do we think about discipleship and our spiritual development? All these things that we were um, taught us a prescribed way of teasing out in a congregational life. Now we're being asked to figure this out in unexpected and unknown terrain. And the, and the analogy you give about Moses also brings up the, the development of the leader in the midst of this, that Moses wasn't a finished product when he started. <clears throat> he had some background and he had familiarity with the Egyptian leaders, and he had familiarity with the, those he would lead. But <clears throat> neither one accepted him early on. 
And you can tell throughout uh, the story of the, of the Exodus that Moses is a very different person at the end of that journey than at the beginning. It's the leading change part is, is multi-dimensional. Uh, it's, it's the people, it's the context, and it's, and it's the leaders. And Moses had to actually then learn how he led, uh, who he led with too. And he didn't, you know, and of course, you know, he didn't want to originally, and, you know, none of us really do some, you know, when we're asked to do something we're not familiar with, um, or do something we're not familiar doing, but God had a purpose in choosing Moses and provided other people who would lead with. And, and with that, Scott, I think the thing that strikes me, and I would, I'm very interested to hear how you two as leaders yourself have learned how to lead change in terms of what have you experienced as like an essential to leading change, right? Because one of the things about Moses that I think differs from how we have been taught to, to lead, the space that Moses occupies, you, you talked about, you know, Moses wasn't a perfect leader. But most of our training as pastors are about getting the performance right, right? We, we have to preach right. None of us get up and go, I'm going to do this wrong today. But leading into spaces where change happens requires that the leader be comfortable with learning and leading, which means you're going to have moments of failure because you're not leading with a focus on perfection and getting it right. You're leading into spaces of obedience. And so that means there are going to be times where people go, you brought us out here and there's no food. There's nothing to eat. Let's go back. You brought us out here to the sea and there's nothing to get across the sea. Well, that's not perfect leadership as we talk about it, right? That's not the perfect performance. Um, and so what I'm learning in this space is that leading change is not about leading rightly. It's about leading faithfully in the midst of that, knowing there are going to be times where you fail, but learn in it, right? Learn in that space. Yeah, I think that's right on, um, Tally. I, I think one of the things that I think is so necessary when you're leading change, at least that I've, I've discovered within myself when I'm in those positions, is is learning to trust my own voice, even to the point of being able to trust when I cannot, when I can say, I don't know what I'm doing, or I don't know which direction we're going, and be authentic about that. Because I think one of the things, and, and what you said is so true, I think we as pastors are, are trained to be um, correct and proper, and, and as Presbyterians, we want to be decent and in order. I think leading can be very messy and disorderly, and we have this fear of that. But being able to admit um, the spaces that we're uncomfortable in or that we don't know how to navigate it allows us to lean into agility, which I don't think we could otherwise, or it makes it harder to do so. And that agility is, is the gift that provides us the ability to pivot and to move and to recalibrate the direction we've been going in. You know, so many times I see people that are so entrenched on a particular path because they, they, they're convinced, that, no, this is the one that I was told is the right one. This is the direction my church should be going in. This is where we should be at this point, or this is what we should be doing, 
what we should be talking about or we should be taking on as a project or as a mission or whatever. And there's no space at all to be able to lean back and examine, but is this really who we are? And is this really what is helping us grow in our faithfulness? And maybe removing that shoulds and be able to stay there for a moment and to say, I'm not sure this is the right direction. I don't know which direction we're going, but this isn't it. Would provide the space and the grace for everyone to say, it's, an, it's another way. We don't know which way, but we're on it together. And maybe that's part of that gift that Moses had of being able to so many times admit to himself and to the people, hey, I have no idea what we're doing here. I'm just listening to God. Scott, is there anything in there you would say is kind of essential that you've learned about leading change? Uh, well, I mean, so much. Eliana stated it very well. I think the uh, what I heard in there is that <clears throat> I think it's a misnomer that the leader has the idea. And I think, I think that's such kind of an old idea that the, the leader is supposed to have the really clear plan and the really, you know, the really clear path forward. And a lot of times, I think the best thing that you can get is consensus on that things are not working. If there's enough consensus and urgency around an agreement around the fact that by and large, this isn't working. I think there's room then for, for the leader and the congregation to explore other options, which sets, it sounds like a low bar for leadership, but it's actually much more challenging than it sounds to give up on the idea that there is a actual complete plan. And as Eliana says, to be able to, to pivot and to adjust uh, is, is so critical um, because you're not, you're figuring it out. You're not, it's not figured out, you're figuring it out. And that's, I think, I think that's very different. I'd be curious to, to hear what you, uh, you think about the uh, essentials of leadership and. Uh, yeah, well, you know, you, you bring out a great point. And I think the thing that uh, I find essential is to most, and, and uh, I would say in 25 years of working organizationally, one of the things that I've felt leaders who lead change do well is they understand that their, what is essential is to help people realize they're moving from a, a, the place that they are to a new place, a different place, a future state that they may not know. And that that creates anxiety in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And, and that instead of the leader kind of going, why don't you get it? This is the will of God. You should be on board. They say things like, no, you're going to be uncomfortable. And this is going to be hard. And we're going to have to do a little bit of storming and a little bit of new formation around this. And you probably won't get it for a while, but that's a part of the process. So they understand that, right? Leaders who lead change get that point enough and, and lead people in that way, right? They create that kind of space for people to struggle. They create that space for people to lament where they're leaving. They create that space for people to, to begin to envision a new reality. But you know, Tally, what you're saying brings up something else for me. I think the leaders that are successful at doing it, doing that, are the ones that can depersonalize the change because it's not about them. 
And I think so much of the challenge leaders might have in this situation is that um, the change, the direction is so centered on their ego, on their uh, preference and everything they've invested into this change that when they encounter resistance or questioning, it's all about me. How different the situation would be if instead of centering themselves, the, the, what they centered was the call of God um, or the actual act of, of change as part of the human experience. And it depersonalizes it on the first level. And sure. secondly, it, it takes it to another explanation of why we have to change. So it's not, we're not changing just because we have to change. We're changing because it's part of our nature. It's part of our theology. It's part of our makeup. It's part of our identity. And that to me, and, and Scott, this is where um, some of the things you mentioned earlier, I think show up in Moses's life, right? Moses, it's not about you. How does Moses know it? It's not about him. Well, the seven plagues are not his doing, right? <laughs> um, Moses, it's not about you. When you get to the Red Sea, you're going to have to take you, your, this little broken staff and, and put it into the water, step into the water. It's, the children of Israel quickly began to learn that God is at work and this leader is just a part of that. And what I experience are leaders who want to lead change and they're the charismatic center of it. And then it becomes about them when people struggle, right? It becomes about them. And what Moses was able to do was turn to God and say, God, you said that this was the way we should go. And then God shows up, right? That to me, that's the, the space where what Eliana is speaking to and the, the ability to really contextualize this in the right way and what people will really struggle to do gets um, centered wrongly when it gets put into the, the hands of the leader, like this is something I must do and my ego gets involved. And, and really you have to look at this as a much bigger 30,000 foot trade winds change that God is leading us into that we'll really just ask, be obedient, step into the water. The, the Red Sea is not your doing, the plagues are not your doing, it's God at work, right? It's God's work. There's so much patience needed when you're, when you're leading change. You have to be open to sit with the complaints a little bit um, and help people reframe them. Uh, and, and, it's, and at the end of the day, it really isn't about, you know, as you say, Tally, it's not about the leader's idea. It's about what, what God's doing in our midst. And that takes time. Like that doesn't, I mean, they, it, it's clear in the scriptures because the scriptures take one chapter to explain, you know, a year or two years worth of, uh, of saga. But leaders also have to be willing to be um, patient, open to hear from uh, the people and, and more importantly, you know, God in the midst of it. And that's also different than just having a plan and going for it and laying out, like when people bring up strategic plans, I have kind of a visceral reaction to that. That's, that's really not how the people of God move. There's nothing compelling about a strategic plan. Yes, it's, it's the science of it. This, yeah. The plan is the science of it. What we're talking about is the art of it, right? And like you said, that's not prescribed, that's described, right? So what we have in the text is a description 
not a prescription. Um, and it's the art of it, which means you're going to try and draw it in pencil first, and then you're going to fill it in a little bit later, and you're going to do some erasing. That's the art of it. And it's also not one size fits all, right? The art of it means that it's contextual, that it fits the particular story and narrative of the people that, that, are, that are a part of this change. I think the other, uh, you know, one thing that I know I've said this before, but everything we're discussing for me seems like optimal work to be engaged in in the middle of a pandemic. If there's nothing else that we, we call from this experience, yes, it's this opportunity that we've been given to really almost bring everything to a standstill, to re-examine how we've been leading, how we've been moving in our spaces, in our communities, in our congregations, and begin to do some of the hard work of listening for God's voice in which direction we need to be going. It is highly contextual. I completely agree with you, Tally. I, I don't think it's one size fits all. But I think this invitation is for all of us. I think um, both corporately as the church, I think individually in our own discipleship, if we end up at the end of this pandemic, which God only knows when it's going to be over, having not learned anything about ourselves or about what direction we need to be moving as a church, we will have missed, I think, an amazing opportunity where everything has been brought to a standstill. Everything's been turned upside down, where we've been forced into isolation, where we have had to reevaluate what it means to have and what it means to be lacking. What a time for us to engage in this kind of work. Yeah. Uh, I agree. the The opportunity here is um, it's a large neon uh, billboard uh, on I five for all of us. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Do they have those? Uh, so, so then for me, that brings up another. Uh, th this is like I think kind of the one of the classic dilemmas of the of the leader uh, role is that the system, to put it in systems term, has never been more open, I think, uh, to change. But when a system is open to change, it is also almost invariably also high, very highly anxious. And highly anxious systems just want to solve the problems in front of them. And the leader has to be able to work, live and work and lead in that space where there isn't easy resolution to things. So, so in Eliana's uh, example, the opportunities are there. The leader and the leaders in the congregation have to decide not to keep doing the same old thing that, you know, like for instance, you know, worship is a non-negotiable. People are figuring that out. I think everything else is negotiable right now. Programming, all those other things. So prioritizing different conversations, changing the conversation at a session meeting, in a session meeting, doing this on Zoom. Yes, you could say it's all very hard and uh, impossible, but it's not. There is an openness now, I think, to look at things differently. Yeah, I think that, you know, you, <laughs> this idea that, um, and there's some people that, for me, uh, leaders, pastors right now who we work with, <laughs> who represent, for me, this in a great way, right? I love um, Pastor Heidi Armstrong, her, her flexible mind, 
around these. She asks the questions that show she's not her. She doesn't have a fixed mindset, right? That she can look at something and go, oh, well, right. It's very, very pliable. Pastor Lena, Pastor Becky, they've shown this like this, this winsomeness around the flexibility of mindsets and being able to think about it in different ways. I think that just if we read the research on fixed mindsets, <laughs> it would really help all of us as leaders be able to see what it is that we as leaders need to kind of mentally model for people um, and looking at this as all available opportunities as opposed to barriers. Um, this is as an opportunity to engage innovation as opposed to the pain of changing what I was comfortable with, right? That's, that's what we mean by changing from a fixed mindset, right? The, the good news is that this fixed mindset. There's good this news. Time, oh, there's always good news. <laughs> oh, there's always good news. I'm convinced. Um, the, the fact is that we live right now, we're living in a time and in a place where we can't have a fixed mindset about anything. I mean, just going to the grocery store, which we would do naturally and without thinking about twice. Now you've got to go through a whole rigmarole of how to go to the grocery store and which aisle you can go down and which one you have to come up. And we're having to rethink so many aspects of our lives that whatever we had fixed in our mind of how things should be done, that's all washed away. Why are we so reluctant to take that on when it comes to our faith communities? Uh, and I right. think it's fear like we might lose something. If we really, really do believe that God is at the center of all this, there really is no loss. It's just a transformation. Just a transformation and, and a wonderful one, right? Exactly. The, yeah. And isn't that the invitation of the gospel to be transformed? Formed. Yeah. I think that the, the, so I loved history and, and I, I, I know we're, we're probably getting close to our time to wrap this up, but uh, just, you know, I love history. And what irritates me more than anything is when leaders use history um, as a way of saying, see, look what we did already, right? And I'm like, that was 30 years ago. There was no such thing as the internet, no such social media platforms. If I said AIDS, you were talking about where the ambulance was because it was an aid car. Now there's something called HIV AIDS, right? There's a whole different way of thinking about the world. So we have to use history as a way of learning, not as a way of repeating what we've, um, what we assume are accomplishments, right? The accomplishments that and the innovation and the opportunities that lay before us, many kind of cultural critics continue to bring us back to changes happening at a, at a sonic boom pace. Um, where so if you're looking at history and taking it at a very and so very slow chunks like oh we we did this and then we did this and then we did this by the time you get done telling the history retelling the history the changes are beyond you right that you need to make into the future so part of this is just us being more future oriented as leaders as opposed to repeating history's past accomplishments and going if we could just get back there everything would be great amen that's going to get me in trouble by the way i know it but still <laughs> more so than usual <laughs> yeah right go ahead email me we'll have the conversation it's okay
Well, I, I sense we're going to pick this topic up again. I, one, one last uh, little thought. Um, I think I think it's worth exploring too. Is is the uh, as Tally rightly says, change is happening kind of at a sonic boom level, um, and uh, fatigue levels are hitting pretty quickly for a lot of leaders too. And a lot of times we're not used to it. I mean, I'm I'm reminded that Moses' arms got tired and he had. You had to have people hold them up. So I, I think the, the leadership part is really, um, it, it's multifaceted and figuring out ways to get uh, renewed and refreshed for that work is also important and, and, and also challenging during this time. You know, the, the, the ways that we would take breaks from this are not the same anymore. Yeah, we have to find new, new ways of having people hold up our arms. Yeah. Well, right. and, and in fact, we, we need to find out how to lead together as, as a community, as opposed to leading individually and in isolation. Um, I think the, the, the framework of the CEO leader who comes down from the mountain with the vision may be replaced by the leaders who sit together in the upper room and get a vision together of what the future looks like, right? Where every person is speaking in, a, in an unknown tongue to <laughs> the praises of God versus Moses coming down from the mountain with a godly moment for, for things to share. Moses needed to raise his arms, have his arms raised because Moses carried a lot of the burden himself. And this is something that God exposed in that, right? Moses, you need to, you need to get the word out to, to 70 folks who can, who can manage that with you. But in the upper room, what we see is a community of people coming together, getting a prophetic imagination and leaning into that, right? This is the one thing that I really enjoy about growing up around um, the Latino church. Um, as a child, we had um, a pastor in a church that we were close to. And I felt like the kind of way in which people were corporately oriented towards community was really healing for me, um, especially the ways of success that I was being exposed to as I was growing up were individual or isolated leader models. Mm. But when we would worship together, I would see these people who were, who were really collaboratively thinking about what was going to happen. And they were, they were acting as a body and, and leading was not a lonely experience. Leading was a family community experience. It was a social experience. And I think in going into the future, given the amount of change people are seeing in the world, we really, really need to think about how we're leading in isolation versus how we're leading together in community. Amen. Good word. Yeah, well said. I think that's a great invitation to uh, maybe picking this uh, thread up again uh, in the upper room uh, around Pentecost, uh, that timetable, and uh, trying to mine the... Uh, God's work then applies to us. Uh, I'm blessed to uh, uh, work and uh, um, live and share this uh, uh, strange time of leadership with both of you and appreciate your insights. And uh, let's pick this up again uh, soon. Sounds good. Yeah, sounds great. Make, the, make some more cookies for me. I'm all out. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> all right. All right. Take care. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.